Hey everybody, Bees with Ben. Super excited today. Well, excited on quite a few levels. It's uh, because of COVID and obviously restrictions, we are now uh, allowed to travel to New Zealand. So how fantastic is that? Now, speaking about New Zealand, I've got an awesome guest on. Phil Lester, all the way from New Zealand. Uh, we're going to be talking about bees as well as wasps now uh phil's written the book the vulgar wasp the story of a ruthless invader and ingenious predator so i'm going to be talking about that which is um very going to be very very interesting and um thank you so much for your time phil really appreciate you uh, coming on board it's my pleasure ben thank you yeah so so obviously now you're in new zealand so whereabouts in new zealand are you so we're in wellington here most people are probably familiar with Wellington. it's at the bottom of the north island Bottom. So I've been here for about twenty years. Yeah. Awesome, fantastic. Now, now let's let's tell us about your uh, obviously you've got a massive amount of credentials and uh, but so so your journey with uh, with bees and wasps. You know what come first? Mm-hmm. So so um, bees and wasps are, are, are fascinating. I'm sure your listen, listeners will not take any convincing of, of that sort of thing, right? So these are very intelligent uh, animals. They um, are wonderful contributors to uh, society um, and pollination and food, all sorts of things like that. Um, but they can also be uh, incredibly abundant and dominant invaders. At least that's the case with um, the social wasps that we study over here. So, so in New Zealand, we probably have um, the social wasps as our, our biggest uh, invertebrate pest to, to a large extent in large sections of the country. Interesting. Okay, now now that particular wasp. So this is because um, there's quite a few different type of wasps, and this is I believe it's the mm-hmm. same one as here. Is it now we're talking about? Is it Vespula germanica? Yeah, Vespula um, germanica, the German wasp. Um, but more commonly here in New Zealand, at least in our Honeydew Beach forest, we have Vespula vulgaris, the common wasp, uh, which has been seen in Australia. But but um, you more commonly have the the German wasp over there. Okay, interesting. And and so New Zealand, so you've got mostly, so which one over there, which is the the real predator and the real you know, ruthless? So, yeah, in, in our, um, our beach forest, our native forest, um, uh, we used to have Vespula germanica, the, the German wasp, but, but that's been superseded, or sort of outcompeted largely um, by the, the slightly smaller common wasp, Vespula vulgaris. Interesting. Okay. Now this now this is the vulgaris. The is the one that's really is you know it's a nuisance when people are cooking outside. Um, yeah. Obviously attacks beehives, other insects. So that's the really nasty one, isn't it? They they both do. So German wasps and, and common wasps will do all those sorts of things. So so they will um, you know they they're really interested in honeybees. We have. Um, Losses here in New Zealand, of, of, in places up to around thirty percent of um, hives can be nailed by by honey uh, by wasps um, in New Zealand late autumn, about this time of year right now. So, so it's the same as in New Zealand as here, because at the moment uh, I'm a licensed pest control technician, so I kill wasps because a lot of yep. the city slickers don't know the difference between a bee or wasp. You know what I mean? Which is understandable mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, yeah. But so so they're so they're real prevalent at the moment. This is in New Zealand. Yeah, so, so um, they have an annual life cycle for the most part, um, so that, that a, a new queen will, will overwinter alone, um, and then they start a nest in spring. Um, those nests are typically really small, right? So so you might have a nest right on your doorstep and not know about. It's, it's only um, so the populations build over the summer period, so you get, you get 
several generations uh, of worker wasps being produced. And um, uh, it's right about now in, in, in autumn that, that they become most abundant, and that's when they're producing the queens that then mate in the overwinter alone. It's interesting. They're, they're a fascinating biology because even the way their social structure within a nest is, um, mm. you know, I mean, is very interesting, isn't it? Because it's there's almost is there a, correct me if I'm saying is there almost a symbiosis between the larval stage and the adult form. They sort of feed one another. Is that correct? Yeah, they, they do. So um, the the adults are are actually pretty useless in feeding themselves. Um, so they can eat, eat sugar by themselves and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but if they want any protein or, or, or um, uh, that sort of thing, they have to feed it to the larvae. The larvae work to digest it and then regurgitate it back to the adults. Um, so that the adults get food that way. The, the adults will at times beg the larvae for food. So so it's a, almost an audible thing where, where they um, uh, beg the larvae, you know, give them give them some, something to eat. Wow, that's that's absolutely fascinating. And, and what, mm. what what's one of the most fascinating components of the wasps that you think? Yeah, you know I mean, is there, is there one particular thing that you find very interesting with these wasps? Oh, they're, they're really smart, right? So so um, you can do all sorts of things. Well, you can teach them to recognise human faces, for example. Um, so they they are able to learn uh, very small little brains, but really able to learn. And honeybees will do that sort of thing too. Wow, that, that's absolutely incredible. That's amazing. And, and and what about control methods? Because obviously the best control is finding the nest. Now, yep. I spent a bit of time in New Zealand a few years ago. There is a product called, uh, I believe, a Vespex. Is that the one that's like a fipronol? Yeah, tell, tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, that, that's the one. So um, in New Zealand, uh, we have a massive problem with wasps. And that's, that's certainly uh, in our honeydew beast forest. So there um, in the upper... Uh, part of the South Island, we see nest densities here, you know, 40 nests per hectare, and, and each of those nests containing five to 10,000 workers. So that's a lot of wasps. So there, the, the wasps' uh, abundance will exceed the, the total biomass of all the vertebrates in there. So the birds, the stoats, the possums, the rats, the mice, all those more wasps than all of those put together. So so what we had um, over here was a desperate need for, for control in those systems. Um, and uh, Richard Toff, who has uh, uh, been working on wasps for many years, experimented with a whole lot of different things and eventually came up with a, a state, Vespex. Um, the, the actual recipe for it is top secret. <laughs> We're not allowed to, to know all that much. Um, but uh, what we do know is, is that it's a protein-based bait, um, got a bit of chicken, got a bit of egg in it, those sorts of things. Very, very attractive to wasps. Um, they will come from the distance. They will smell it and come from the distance to, to collect it. Uh, low concentrations of, of fipronol in it. And um, so they come and collect a lot of it, take it back to their nest and distribute it to the larvae and to the larvae then redistribute it to work it. You know, and, and so everybody dies. It's very effective. Okay. So I was going to ask that question. So, so in your opinion, yeah, um, mm-hmm. it is effective? Yeah, it, it is here. So, so certainly... So um, uh, you're looking at, at rates of, you know, 95, 99% kill uh, of, of wasp populations, wasp nests uh, in an area. And they've done, um, uh, have done to the extent of thousands of hectares with us. So, you know, what one study will do 2,000 hectares. You know, so quite a large area that, that, that are able to control wasps and to a big effect. And you can really see the difference. Yeah, see, that's incredible because they, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, so they don't have those issues... 
over in Europe, do they? These types of issues. No, and and, and, and well, wasps do become a problem in autumn um, at times, and people complain about them. People get them in their houses, and and every year you'll hear stories about people burning down their house trying to smoke wasps out from yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> But, but but the same density of wasps is not uh, present there as it is here. So so there they'll have like in the range of one or two nests per hectare, whereas whereas you see everything forty nests per hectare and, and that sort of thing in forest is a lot. That's incredible. As you're saying, forty nests per hectare. That's just absolutely. Yeah. That's that's incredible. And people. Um, some people because would be allergic because of their their toxicity, their venom. Mm-hmm. So are, yeah. are, are the deaths over there in New Zealand? Yeah, it's it's we we it's hard necessarily to put you uh, give an exact number, right? So, um, what will happen? We think more often than than has been reported is somebody will get a sting. They might have a anaphylactic shock, but it might be interpreted as a heart attack or or, or something like that, especially if the person's old. Um, so we think that, that the the rate of mortality due to wasp things is underreported and underseen by by doctors. But certainly we, we get one uh, one or two deaths every few years that, that hit the media. Wow, that's that's interesting. And and are you continue? Are you doing any work on? Obviously, you've written this book a couple of years ago. So the vulgar mm-hmm. wasp, the story of a ruthless invader and genius, genius predator, which I'm, I'm going to put in the in the show notes where where people can buy it because I've bought this um, uh, a couple of years ago uh, directly from you. Um, so I'm going to put in the show notes because it's an awesome book because they're just a fascinating creature and I find them incredibly interesting. Are, yeah. you, are you doing any work with the wasps at the moment on a on a sort of a PhD wait, wait. level or anything? Yeah, so we've, we've been doing uh, a bunch of stuff. We, we've done it quite a bit in terms of um, uh, looking at the pathogens of wasp populations, so um, all the viruses, and, and a huge crossover, unfortunately, with the, the viruses and honeybees and within wasp populations. So we still see the form wing virus, we still see cashmere bee virus. We, we did one study in, in the big forest where, where every single wasp we looked at had cashmere bee virus in it. You know, so we looked at individual wasp level, every single wasp was infected. Um, so a bunch of other pathogens that, that, that we see in honeybees are, are present in, in um, our wasp populations, in the FEMA um, is there and all this. And so we do a bit of that. There's um, uh, some work we're involved in here looking at um, uh, gene drives, genetic modifications for, for um, looking at controlling wasp populations. So, so we've been doing a little bit of that, not in terms of actually making transgenic or genetically modifying wasps, but doing a lot of the work that could lead towards that. If, if for example, the New Zealand government decided, hey, genetic modification might be a way to control these populations. Interesting, because I believe they were in Australia. The CSIRO um, were funded. I think it was a massive amount of money to to do something similar in Australia. But I think, it, to my knowledge, it sort of come to a bit of a, a dead end because they're doing that same sort of process they're working on with the mosquitoes, aren't they? To create like a uh, yeah a, a sterile a sterile female so it breeds out, breeds themselves out. Is that, is that along the lines? Yeah. That's a, effectively what what could be done, and, and we've done some modelling, um, statistical modelling in that that way. Um, it, it could be uh, could be possible, um, but uh, you know people will think with a lot of these gene drives, the genetic modification technology, it would be overnight. It wouldn't be overnight. It, it would take you know forty years or so to to, to knock back wasp populations as this spreads through 
um, the, the population is over a, a big area. And um, it may not, even though it might establish some, yeah, the genetic modification in the population, it, it might not lower the numbers substantially. We, you know, there's lots of work to do here. Yeah, well, absolutely interesting. And and in a natural environment over in Europe, is there any natural predators? Is there anything that actually will kill them? There, there are. Um, and there have been, uh, New Zealand is uh, in a situation where we've just had permission to introduce two of those predators um, here. So one is a, a beetle. Um, that, that are a, a beetle, the wasp beetle, it's called over there, and that beetle will will uh, have its eggs transported into a wasp nest, um, and it's the the workers pick them up and, and take them into a wasp nest, but they hatch within the nest and eat the larvae. Um, and there's another fly, uh, a, a, a dipterin, uh, that will come into wasp nest and do a similar sort of thing, where it'll lay eggs. In or on the wasp nest, and those eggs and larvae will, will then eat the, the larvae. So we've got permission to introduce those into New Zealand. Um, Bob Brown, with, working with Landcare, has, has, has done that. Um, we're yet to do it, and we're yet to see the effects. But uh, you know, there's some hope that, that a biocontrol option would be effective. That is absolutely incredible and fascinating. That is really interesting. So I wonder if anyone's mm. working on that in Australia as well. You know, we do anything like that because that's that's absolutely not to my knowledge. Yeah, so I, I don't think to my knowledge that there's, um, that, that that is happening. Um, I, if I was an Australian, I'd be sitting there thinking, oh, I'll just let New Zealand do this and see if there is any effect going on here, and and then you know if, if there is a big effect, and um, consider it for Australian populations. Interesting, absolutely, yeah. absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you, you guys are in a, a, a similar situation to us in some ways in that you've got no native Vespula, to my knowledge. You've got some native Papalos, um, Polistes, but, but you've got no native Vespula. So actually th- these seem very specific to Vespula. They could be quite effective in Australia too. So it could be a good option for you guys down the track. Yeah, they're absolutely fascinating because they're a real big problem. I've seen, you know, I mean, where, where people, cafes, restaurants, people can't eat outside. So obviously they're losing this massive amount of income, but, you know, even though it's a short period, probably six weeks. But absolutely, yep. they're, they're a devastating pest and just really – and they, the other thing is too, they really hurt. <laughs> when they sting, they really do yeah. hurt. <laughs> they do. And, and uh, you guys have got, you've got the German ones. The, the, the German wasps seem uh, – a bit more um, vindictive and angry than the common wasps even. You know, I, I, the, the German wasps are, are definitely more aggressive um, and will go people for seemingly no reason at times. They're really interesting little species. Oh, I totally agree. Absolutely really nasty. And uh, um, yeah. they're, they're speaking, Phil, of uh, parasites and predators. Um, so you've recently uh, written another book, Healthy Bee, Sick Bee, The Influence of Parasites, Pathogens, Predators pesticides on honeybees um so, yep. so, so talk us through this book yeah so so um new zealand like australia like everywhere has um you know issues with, with honeybees people lose hives periodically um and and at each of those occasions uh you know well, why do we lose hives what's going on in a honeybee population similarly with with um you know, every time a, a pesticide study hits the media, you, you know, the media will, uh, wow, why are we allowing neonica to noise in the country, for example? Why are we allowing footprint use or, or those sorts of pesticides pyrethroids? You know, so so what I really wanted to do with this book is, is to 
review the literature and review the status and say, well, here's where we think we're at largely with a whole bunch of different factors that are affecting our honeybee populations. And here's what we could do to, to improve their health. Interesting. Okay. And so, and, and so give us maybe a couple of examples of that, Phil. Is there anything? So, so how we how we might improve that? So yes. yeah, you know, um, a lot of people will do things like um, immediately point to pesticides as the biggest challenge honeybee populations face. Okay. Um, and, and you see that you know in the media quite a bit, but but actually uh, here in New Zealand, certainly um, you guys are pretty lucky over there in Australia. But but here in New Zealand, the biggest challenge that I think our honeybees face by far is varroa. So so the, the parasite varroa. So we know here in New Zealand, look, if we don't treat our honeybees for varroa, our honeybee populations will decline in health substantially and you'll get substantial rates of overwintering loss. Um, so th- that's, that's just a, a, a known constant that we have to cope with now here in, in New Zealand that you guys are lucky you don't have to cope with as yet. Mm. So... So, you know, uh, in terms of improving our honeybee health, if, if us researchers and, and folk want to get, do something, well, the, the number one factor we, we've really got to get involved with is finding some way of improving varroa control. Um, pesticides are, are, you know, poor varroa. You know, some of the, the most common pesticides that people will see in honeybee hives are actually pesticides that beekeepers put in them themselves here in New Zealand and lots of places overseas to control varroa population. So could we move away from the system? How can we get away from putting pesticides in our hives to control varroa? What else can we do in, in those systems? So, so an example of that would sort of be, say, oxalic acid vaporisation? Yeah, 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 c- certainly. Um, so... Those ways, you know, there's issues associated with oxalic acid. There's issues associated with formic acid. You know, there's lots of those are not good for brood, for example. And yep. there, um, and, and, and um, so you, you've got to be careful. They're not always effective. The beekeepers can put in too much or too little. You know, it, it takes some some work around them. Um, there are tools in our toolbox. Um, that, that we can utilise, but but you know what else can we do? What 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 are what are the other options that are out there? Yeah, that's yeah. And, and so, and are you working on anything at the moment when it comes to varroa control? Like personally? Yeah. So um, uh, one of the things that we're looking at is um, gene silencing approach. Um, so RNA. I don't know if you've heard about that, but but um. So last year, for example, there was a paper in uh, Science that, that came out by Leonard Group in, in North America um, that, that genetically modified honeybees to produce double-stranded RNA. And, and that double-stranded RNA, when it gets into varroa, um, will cause the varroa to, to, to die, um, effectively. It shuts up. It causes the varroa to, to to turn off its gene production. And, and if you're turning off the, the gene production for a few quite key specific genes that are useful for the, the variety to, to live, that they need it to live, um, then you'll end up with uh, dead variety. And um, so, so we've been working with the, the sequences and the system that they have had and similarly found it it's actually really effective. Um, but it's, so it's the stage one of sort of getting that towards, uh, you know, a novel very specific, highly targeted pesticides. Wow. 
Wow, that's a, that's absolutely fascinating, absolutely absolutely incredible. And it's um, is there any advice mm. any advice that you could sort of say to say to Australian beekeepers as a whole? that you know mm-hmm. you know if we do get varroa is there any advice you could sort of say because we don't obviously those listening we don't have varroa the only continent not to have it but let's, yeah, let's yeah. Say, it's do you think it's well probably two two questions here do you think you know we're more likely to get it or do you reckon we've got a good sort of biosecurity and we should be okay in your in your opinion there yeah i i, I think you guys are very lucky and, and you want to keep it that way Right, so um, I work with beekeepers over here who, who tell me that, that uh, look, varroa control now costs them fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Right, so so that's a cost that you don't have to, you know, right now you guys don't have to put that into into your beekeeping business. You you, you know that profit and, and that sort of stuff that you can take out. So you, you know you're really lucky without it, and and I certainly do everything in your power to probably keep it that way. It would be the number one situation. Pr- promotion of biosecurity, you know, absolutely go down that road. You know, making sure that beekeepers are aware of how lucky you are and how devastating grow can be. Grow probably came into New Zealand by an illegal import from a beekeeper. We, yes. we you know we think that it probably came into the country by. A beekeeper think, wow, these queens or this, you know, population somewhere in Europe or North America is awesome. It'd be great to have in New Zealand. I'll bring them into New Zealand, and and you know, you can do that quite easily in your pocket. You have a you know little little group of bees in your pocket, and, and away you go. And some of those had varroa on them, and, and now it's a massive cost to New Zealand. New Zealand beekeeping has changed over the last twenty years much more than. Than we would have ever imagined. Yeah, um, devastating. So keeping it, keeping Barrow out would, would be the number one thing to, to do in Australia. Australia is an interesting country, though. For another example, the, you don't have deformed wing virus. Yes. Um, and there are there are strains of deformed wing virus. One strain that, that's particularly common with with honeybees um, uh, in Barrow. Um, so so the uh, one strain there, but but there are a whole bunch of other strains. That, that existed in a number of places, including places like Hawaii. Hawaii had had dozens of, of strains of deformed wing virus before Varroa came along. So I'm, it's really an interesting situation why Australia does not have deformed wing virus. It's very strange, and a lot of us can't work it out. And it, it may be that you get some resistance to Varroa by not having deformed wing virus or by having something that's, that's the term deformed wing virus in Australia. We just don't know what's going on. Wow, that's, that's absolutely so fascinating, Phil. Just everything you're saying is just absolutely incredible. And, mm, and I'm uh, glad, yeah. Wow, it's absolutely, yeah. And as you're saying, we're so lucky. And you sometimes I sometimes I still got to stop and think, you know, I've, I've done a bit of travelling, and you go, wow, how does a poor little bee survive, a little honeybee? And they get all these bacterial, you know, uh, fungal, mm. All these viruses and and you know I mean obviously foul broods and just so many different things you've got to wonder how they um how they sort of survive so so on you, uh, yeah sorry go on. yeah on on um, related to that just just you know I think you you're right you look at how many things that bees have got and how 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 much disease they carry it's part of that is us right in the way we manage bees. So, so we we do all sorts of things that really promote disease in, in bee population. We have things called apiaries, 
right now. And, and every time I think about an apiary, I, I just get depressed. Um, <laughs> really, but because that, that's not how bees would live normally, right? So normally you would have uh, one hive here and another hive maybe you know a couple of kilometers away or you know at least hundreds of meters. And, and in doing so, that 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 means that the bees aren't in such high densities. There's not so much drifting. But you know where one bee will, from one hive will go into another hive and all that sort of thing. So by having very much lower densities of bees in their evolutionary past, they probably had many fewer diseases um, out there. The way we keep bees here with lots and lots of hives in apiary, sometimes dozens, you know, you might see 50 um, hives in an apiary at times. Gee, that, that just so promotes disease and, and problems for bees and competition for nectar and all those sorts of things. So, so, so I think humans are actually one of the biggest problems that bees have, unfortunately. Yeah, that's so true. Is there any clear answer, in your opinion, Phil? Um, I, I I don't know that there is in some ways um, for for that sort of thing because I can't see you know apiarists and, and beekeepers will will put their bees in an apiary you know it's just so much easier you're not going to have one hive here and one hive there and all that sort of thing over countryside so um, perhaps smaller numbers of hives in an apiary might might make a difference but but I I, I think um, largely you know the 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 high densities of hives are, are contributing to our problems that we have in apiaries, um, but certainly also that the things that we do, like um, putting them in monocultures or, or not having high levels of flower diversity and nectar diversity and all those things make a difference too. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's also too, um, this whole Manuka craze at the moment be contributing to that as well because you're getting obviously good high dollar value mm-hmm. per, per kilo as well, isn't it? Because, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is contributing... Because I, I think, did I read right? Some of the stats is over for the North and South Island of um, New Zealand is over one million uh, hives. Yes, we've we got about a million hives here, and um, uh, you know, the, there is clear evidence of real overstocking rates in, in lots of the Manuka areas where you know the, there's just too many hives, and, and the bees aren't thriving, they aren't, aren't doing well. So it's 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 a tricky one to try and regulate. Um, well, especially when you've got uh, multiple landowners who are, you know, near a manuka source who are willing to let this beekeeper and that beekeeper and the other one put, put hives up there without really worrying about or understanding stocking rates. Yes. Yeah. And when you look at it, obviously, that high stocking rates, you know, a million, roughly a million hives in New Zealand, compared to Australia, I think we've got about 650,000 um, mm-hmm. managed hives. Yeah. And our landmass is, you know, substantially bigger too. So, um, yep. Yeah, interesting. And um, so, Phil, so you you're a professor. Uh, you you spend most of your time at the Victorian University of Wellington. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, so, and and so, talk us through your sort of your day to day work there. So you're doing lecturing and and that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, lecturer here. Um, have been for the uh, last twenty years or so. So uh, I lecture all sorts of things. And at first year biology, uh, we do some biodiversity and conservation. We do uh, on the pest management. Um, all, all those sorts of things. Um, so, uh, in addition to that, research program primarily focused on social insects. So, not just um, bees and wasps. We, we also do a bit of ant work, especially around the, the invasive ants. So, Argentine ants. We've done some yellow crazy ant work in, in the Pacific. 
um, and including some a little bit of work on Christmas Island off, off the west coast of Australia. There. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And and what about COVID? Because New Zealand is obviously, you know, you guys did so well during COVID. You've got an amazing, um, amazing uh, prime minister there. Um, so that's did that affect you very much? You know, through that for the last eighteen months. Yeah, we, we, we've been pretty lucky. Like Australia, we're an island, um, and and that that has made us really fortunate. New Zealand is particularly isolated, which which we. Uh, dislike a lot uh, for a lot of our lives um, over here. So every time you want to go to Europe or North America or something, it's a major flight, um, as it is for you guys. But um, oh my gosh, it, it was lucky when when COVID came around. Hey, ice, being isolated has some serious advantages to it. Um, so we have had been fortunate in terms of having a prime minister here who uh, is quite open and willing to listen to science. Yeah, you know, and, and understand has a good understanding of science and that sort of thing. So we've seen that around the world where people have chosen different approaches. Our prime minister listened to the epidemiologists, listened to the science advice that, that, that she had, and, and we are just very fortunate. Yeah. Totally agree and couldn't agree more. So uh, absolutely really appreciate your time, Phil. So I'm going to put the, in the show notes your books. Um, mm. I'm going to put them in there. And I just want to say a big, massive thank you because that was absolutely fascinating incredible. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Dan. It's been my pleasure.